And now, it's time for Lawyers for Jesus Radio, lighting our path through law. A show about faith in the law and in the marketplace. Featuring the partners from the law firm Mauk and Baker. Located in downtown Chicago, Mauk and Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm John Mauk, a partner and attorney at the law firm of Mauk and Baker in Chicago. We are six attorneys that focus on serving the body of Messiah. We're all followers of Jesus, and we try to help every believer with their legal needs, and non-believers too. To learn more about us, go to maukbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com, or call 312-726-1243. Are you unsure about Islam? What does it mean? What does the religion teach? Do you want to know more about religious liberty from the perspective of another religion? Uh, Today, our guest is Azam Nizamuddin, president of the Muslim Bar Association of Illinois, as well as general counsel for American Trust Corporation, uh, NAIT, and uh, chief compliance officer of Allied Asset Advisors, and an adjunct professor of theology at Loyola University, where he teaches Introduction to Islam, so he's familiar with interfaith discussions, and in the past has been interviewed by NPR, the Wall Street Journal, and the Chicago Tribune. Azam, welcome to our show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, John. Uh, It was uh, good uh, getting to know you uh, in the Department of Justice uh, seminar on Religious Liberty and the Religious Land Use Act, and in our discussions, we uh, we said, you know, it would be good to talk about Islam and Christianity and preconceptions uh, directly, because so many people just are afraid to ask questions or hurt feelings and 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 discuss honestly. So that's one of the things we're going to try to do. And I I think I wanted to say at the outset that. Uh, I don't represent all Christians. I'm an evangelical. I, I kind of speak for what they believe, and I'm sure you don't represent all Muslims. There's a variety of different uh, uh, beliefs, but having said that, uh, talking in the broad generalities, uh, tell us what is Islam and, and what do you believe as a, as a Muslim? Mm-hmm. So uh, thanks for having me, John. I really uh, I'm happy to be here and uh, Hello to all your listeners. Um, so in terms of uh, Islam, uh, literally, Islam means to submit to God, and that's what it means. It's, so it's not simply a belief system, but it's action. So the idea of submitting to God both in your mind, in your heart, and in society. Um, and theologically, Islam is really about um, the recognition uh, that there is only one God in the world. And this God is a God that has created the universe, that is the God of love and justice, and who intervenes in your life if you call on that God with a sincere heart and with an open mind. Now, historically speaking, uh, Islam comes on the scene with the life story of the Prophet Muhammad in the 
basically the 6th, 7th century in southern Arabia, in the Arabian Peninsula, in the towns of what is today Mecca and Medina. And from there, after his ministry, which lasts about 23 years, um, you then begin to see his followers uh, spreading the faith and then ultimately leading to the formation of major empires. Well, uh, you, you, you skipped over the Quran there. Where does the Quran come in? So, in the uh, ministry of Muhammad, uh, the ministry begins with the revelation of the Quran to him. So, for example, at the age of 40, so he's, he's living in Mecca as a merchant, as a regular member of society, respected member of society, uh, known as the honest one with integrity. All of a sudden, uh, in, during the month of Ramadan, uh, he experiences this revelation, which then he continues to receive directly from God over the course of 23 years. Now, that's, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought there was a, a, an angel or a supernatural being that was involved. Yes, very good. So there's an intermediary, what we call the angel Gabriel, that technically is an intermediary from him to God that delivers the messages of the Quran. And this occurs for like 23 years. Those messages that he receives ultimately are placed into a text, some of it during his lifetime, and ultimately in a codified text about 20, 25 years after his demise. And that is what we come to learn as the Quran. And uh, from my readings of the Quran, and again, not, not extensive, I notice that there's a lot of similarities with the Hebrew scriptures and uh, Christian scriptures. That is, there are certain parts that are quite the same. And um, I, I, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard this comparison, but the Book of Mormon was presented to Joseph Smith in quite a similar way through, through an angel intermediary, Mormons believe. And the book is not the same as the Hebrew scriptures or the Bible that Christians have, but it has a lot of similarities. In other words, they're both the Quran and the Book of Mormon are parallels and claim to be corrections of the uh, of the Hebrew Christian text. Is that right? Uh, right? Yeah. So I would say, substantively, um, the Quran and uh, with comparison to the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament have very similar themes. The idea of a salvation, the idea of God, the idea of prophets, the idea of doing good, the idea of establishing a law, and things like that are very uh, similar in the Quran. However, structurally, it's very different from the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. It's not chronological, for example, the way that the Hebrew Bible is. And it's not geared towards necessarily a particular... Uh, ethnic community in history. Rather, it's a, uh, structurally, it's basically various segments and chapters that basically uh, bestow upon people to do good and to address issues that arise during the ministry of Prophet Muhammad. Uh, this is Lawyers for Jesus Radio. You're listening to Azam Nizamuddin and he is the president of the Muslim Bar Association in Illinois and an adjunct professor of theology at Loyola University. Uh, what is it that you teach at Loyola? What's the, what's the uh, title of your course? Yeah, so I teach Introduction to Islam. And in the past, I've taught world religions and also great Muslim thinkers. And uh, tell us where 
Islam is going today? Is it changing? And is the American versions of Islam changing? Do you see structural changes or are those all different depending on the sect of Islam? Yeah, I, that's a tough question to answer because Islam is a global religion, right? So there's 1.5 billion Muslims in the world and they're situated in different uh, ethnic, nationalist um economic context. So ranging from uh, a majority population in places like Indonesia, in Pakistan, uh, the Middle East, uh, North Africa, or minority populations such as in India, uh, the Balkans, and maybe other parts of Africa, and of course, Europe and the United States. So each sort of community, I would say, has its own sort of historical development or cur and current situations. Uh, with respect to the American Muslim community, you see a, a sort of uh, divide of uh, ethnically between indigenous Muslims, people who are from the African-American community who became a Muslim very early on or came as Muslims as slaves and maybe lost them or some of them retained it or returned back to it. And then you see a major uh, influx of immigrants that came in the 60s and 70s particularly uh, from South Asia which is Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan, as well as different parts of the Middle East. So you have a good mix of that sort of you know group, which is the um, um, people from abroad, but also local Muslims, ethnically speaking. I mean, well, do you th the the differences within Muslim groups primarily uh, depend on the context, like you're talking about? That is the the nation and historical. Uh, experiences there, um, majority uh, or minority, or do they vary according to the different sects yeah. of Islam? So uh, what we're talking now is about the concept of sectarianism. And in terms of sectarianism, you see an early sort of divide that develops in the Muslim community, really early on within the first 50 years uh, of the development of the community. And the division came along political lines first and foremost. So the first question was, when the Prophet Muhammad died, who would succeed him? Who is the legitimate successor to the Prophet Muhammad? That was the first question. And the community was divided on this issue. And, and is, is there a recognized successor by some of the sects now living? Right. So the majority community today are known as Sunnis, and these are about 85% of the global Muslim world. And the Others are the Shia, and there's different branches of Shiism, uh, about 15%. So the Sunnis um, basically concluded that those who are closest to him in terms of his companionship and uh, his um, friends, that those who uh, were led, who led the community early on, that's legitimate. Uh, the Shia community early on felt that it should be a I, member I'm of his family. I'm not sure your first answer there. Do they, do they recognize that there's a successor? To Muhammad? Yes, yeah. So his first and, successor was Abu Bakr, who yeah. was his Who's closest the companion. Current, who was the current uh, leader, or is there one recognized there, now? No, there isn't one right now. Okay, so yeah. uh, there was a recognized successor, and then that continued for a while, and then... Uh, yeah. um, okay, well, wow. Uh, our first segment has gone very quickly. Coming up, we will talk further with Azim about some of the tough questions of Islam that you've never gotten to ask. I'm John Malk, and this is Lawyers for Jesus Radio.
Sometimes, Jesus used the law to make a difference, and so must we. In his book, Jesus in the Courtroom, author and attorney, John Mauck, shows us how to engage our modern legal system for the good of the kingdom. Jesus in the Courtroom discusses the need for faith-filled lawyers in order to protect the church and what good can happen when we partner with Christian legal professionals. To order your copy of Jesus in the Courtroom, find it at Moody Publishers or go to JesusInTheCourtroom.com. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm John Mauk, an attorney at Mauk & Baker, a law firm based in Chicago, which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. Today, we've been speaking with Azam Nizamuddin, an attorney and president of the Muslim Bar Association and adjunct professor of theology at Loyola University, where he teaches uh, introduction uh, to Islam. And Azam, you were uh, introducing us to the history of leadership uh, historically in Islam, and you were indicating that the Sunnis went one direction and the Shia went the other direction. So pick that up where you left off. Sure. So um, what I had said that the people who succeeded Muhammad ultimately became uh, those leaders of the Sunni community, if you will. However, there was a minority uh, difference of opinion on this. Uh, some people felt that members of his family, in particular his cousin and son-in-law, Ali, should have been the rightful successor to Muhammad, not only because of the bloodline, because he was married to his daughter, but also because of his courage, his stature in the community, uh, his ethic and character, and so forth. These ultimate political differences gave then rise to theological differences over time, and ultimately even to empires that supported one group or the other. Um, and today you see this reflected in the world as well. But but today there is neither side has a recognized uh, successor to Muhammad. I, I, the recognized successor to the Muhammad would be basically the global Muslim community in a sense, okay. but not one person so, or one so leader. So there's no longer one right. person like the Catholics have a pope. Right, exactly. Uh, We're more like Protestants in, yeah. in terms of the political and, situation. Uh, Protestants are... are basically governed by scripture yeah. and, and also mixed in with church tradition. It, it, exactly. it varies. And, exactly. Uh, the structure is the same. Well, tell us about yourself. Now, when did you decide to become a Muslim or was that just thrust upon you and you were, you, you decided to be a Muslim because that's how you were raised? Yeah. So I basically was born into a Muslim family. My family hails from India. And um, we grew up in a, I would say, fairly sort of a traditional South Asian Muslim family. Is that Sunni or Shia? Sunni. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I would say really, you know, it was kind of natural for me to be a Muslim just kind of growing up. Uh, but being a sort of, you know, uh, one, the only minority or the only Muslim growing up for most of my educational career, you know, you, you know, you have questions about, you know, who you are in society and when you see and you interact with other people of other faiths, Lutherans, Catholics and Jews, you do question your own faith. And I think it was really in college that I began to study my faith a little bit more. Um, and I think when I dealt deeper into the subject, it ultimately led me to study theology. Uh, as a major in college. Where, where was that? At Loyola University. Okay. So I was probably, I don't know if this is accurate, but I think it's pretty accurate. I was probably the first Muslim to major in Catholic theology <laughs> at okay. Loyola University. That led me then to do uh, graduate studies in religion, uh, just because I found the subject so 
interesting. And particularly the development of Christianity, I found to be a fascinating subject, and I studied it quite extensively. And also the development of Islamic spirituality, namely known as Sufism. And that was my uh, master's thesis was on a Sufi thinker called Al-Ghazali, a medieval theologian. Uh, so those questions led me to, I think, reaffirm my faith more strongly, helped me to understand the historical trajectories of traditions and religions, uh, and so on and so forth. So I would say that uh, family plus learning and education sort of enhanced my beliefs and so forth. And when you studied Sufism, you're, you're, you're talking about spirituality, and I, th I think you also mentioned in the first segment that there's a feeling and belief that Allah speaks to or gives thoughts to uh, his followers. Is that correct? Yeah. As, as long as you, again, as you, you know, sort of have an open heart and are spiritually prepared to welcome God into your life. Even if you outwardly and mechanically go through the rituals that you're supposed to do as Muslims, it doesn't mean that God has entered your heart. So there's a lot of you know, sort of practicing Muslims who maybe are not consciously aware and God conscious. And did you have a moment at which you felt God entered your heart? And can you tell us about that? Well, I think that's a ongoing phenomenon. <laughs> there are moments where I think as human beings that we're never, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that my belief on this is that we're never there. We're never quite there. There's never a moment, like, for example, there's not a religious nirvana. Oh, that, that differs quite quite a lot from the evangelical understanding of Jesus' teaching. Yeah. You must be born again. Right, right. And that there's there's a moment, and God remembers that moment, and most people remember the moment. When you, when you talk to evangelicals, they can talk about the time when they decided to ask Jesus to come in mm -hmm. as their Savior. So, Well, I would make a distinction between belief and, like, closeness to God. In other words— the issue of be, being a believer in Islam or Christianity, in that sense, that's never wavered. Uh, in other words, I never left the faith. But the idea of spiritual satisfaction and being close to God, that sort of ebbs and flows in life, I think. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm John Mauk of Mauk and Baker, and we're talking with Azam Nizamuddin about his Islamic faith and the differences between Islam and Christianity. And uh, we'll probably get into uh, Judaism, too, because uh, Azam has studied all of these things as, as a theologian and an academic. Uh, let's talk about some of the tough, uh, un, untalked about uh, differences between Islam and Christianity. Uh, to me, the number one thing is that Christians hope and pray that Muslims will come to believe and trust in Jesus. And I see that Muslims have a, a, a desire and an, often a fervor to see people uh, become followers of Allah. But we don't talk about that with each other because uh, somehow it's kind of offensive to say, I, I have a belief that I want you to change to. And uh, is, is that true? Is that, is that a barrier, an unspoken uh, agenda when we have these interfaith dialogues? Uh, do we need to put that on the table? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I think that's an important question because I think that as you sort of, I think, uh, asked in your question, there's a, I think we know 
it's pretty clear what the evangelical position is on the issues about uh, spreading the gospel and proselytization and conversion. I think Islam has a much more complex dynamic here because doctrinally speaking uh, and historically speaking, I don't believe that Muslims were required to spread the faith or uh, try to proselytize people. And if you see the early history of Islam, that is the case. In other words, that wasn't the case at all. Well, now, I, now I've read that as Islam spread, often uh, Jews and Christians were forced to convert, not always, but that if you were pagan mm -hmm. and didn't accept Islam, uh, you might die. Yeah, I, and, I, and you know what? I read the same things growing up. And then, as like I said, when I studied academically and studied the actual history of Islam, meaning if you look at the development of Islam, for example, in the Middle East, which was primarily consisting of three major traditions. One was paganism, which ultimately died out in the Arabian Peninsula. Second was Christianity, and third was Zoroastrianism. And if you look at the first 200 years of the growth of Islam, for example, you see Christian communities maintaining their traditions and faith, and same thing with the Zoroastrians. But two centuries later, you begin to see a massive shift. So scholars, scholars of the Middle East who have studied this, they have looked at registers of deeds, have looked at divorce records, and they see a gradual change in names from Christian names, Arab names, Zoroastrian, Persian names, to ultimately Arabic names, which signifies they've adopted Islam as their faith. In other words, it was much more gradual. It took about 400 years for Iran, for example, well, to become yeah, Muslim. Yeah, it could signify that. Yeah. Uh, from the evidence you're giving me, it could, it could mean they're forced conversions or, or, or people are, are emigrating. Uh, because another thing that tr troubles me about Islam, uh, where there's all this discussion about Islam being a, a religion of love, is that in so many Arab countries, the Jews have been expelled and the Christians don't feel welcome. And uh, the, particularly around Israel and Palestine, the, the, the Christians have just seemed to have been forced out and persecuted. Pakistan, the persecution is pretty radical. Mm -hmm. In Egypt, it's it's not so bad, but uh, there doesn't seem to be a toleration uh, in many Muslim-majority countries. Yeah, so I would say that doctrinally speaking, that is not the case. Remember, Islam considers Islam textually, the Quran and the traditions, and even theologically, considers Christianity and Judaism part of the same message that God has sent to humanity. So because Islam came afterwards, it recognized the existence of Christians and Jews in society. So that's why I said, if you look at the period, you'll see that Christians and Jews living in Islamic societies for a thousand years. Well, this has been a wonderful discussion with Azam Nizamuddin. And we will have a second segment, and you can, uh, if you want to hear all of this one, you can go to uh, malkbaker.com and uh, hear the podcast. And uh, the second segment, uh, if you have a legal need or question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malk and Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at malkbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Visit our website. You can subscribe to our Religious Liberty Newsletter. 
with legal updates or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. Thanks for listening. I'm John Mauk, partner at Mauk & Baker, and this has been Lawyers for Jesus Radio. to serve somebody Yes indeed You're gonna have to serve somebody